If you're interested in what China's doing in Africa and the Global South, you're going to want to subscribe to the China Africa Project. We've indexed every major news story going back years, and it's easily searchable by country, topic, or keyword. Plus, we're the only source for daily analysis on all of the big stories related to Chinese engagement in Africa and throughout the developing world. With a subscription, you'll enjoy full access to the site. Plus, you'll get our popular daily email newsletter that comes out every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. To sign up, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Hey, Kobus, very quickly before we get started today, I'd like to make a quick correction about something I said in our previous show that we did with Cliff and Boya. Uh, we did that earlier this week when I mentioned the blockage of the Ethiopia-Djibouti railway. I incorrectly stated that it was an anti-war protest opposed to the Addis government's policies in Tigray, which was completely wrong. I want to thank several of our very, very astute listeners for kindly calling me out on that and reminding me that the blockade was actually done by protesters in the ethnically Somali Afar region. So again, my apologies for that error. Today, we are going to talk about Chinese diplomacy. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to go back to basics because a lot of people are approaching what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa without really understanding what are the foundations of Chinese diplomacy. Who are the people enacting those policies and what are the key principles guiding them? You know, Chinese diplomats behave very differently from their U.S., European, even their Japanese and Korean peers. It's something that's not very well understood in Africa and certainly in a lot of other places. And I'll even put the U.S. down there as well, with only very rare exceptions, like the former Chinese ambassador to South Africa, Lin Songtian, who was very outgoing, unafraid to speak to the press, went on live TV to do Q&As in English. But he was by far the exception and not the norm. Instead, we're going to find out why today Chinese ambassadors and other diplomats engage the public in highly scripted formats. They mostly stick to approved talking points, and they generally don't engage the public at all the same way that, say, their U.S. or French counterparts do. And then at the same time, we now have this new generation of diplomats like Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian or Ambassador to Sweden Gui Tsongyou, who are extremely aggressive and make up what we loosely call the wolf warriors that we've talked about them before. By the way, that is a name that Chinese diplomats themselves absolutely abhor, but is a name that has stuck with them nonetheless. 
These guys are the tip of the spear in the media battle with the US and Europe, and pretty much anybody who criticizes China, especially on sensitive issues like Xinjiang, Hong Kong, human rights, COVID, and all sorts of things like that. So, Kobus, understanding Chinese diplomats and the way they behave is very complicated. It has a lot of history behind it, and it speaks to the issue of this knowledge deficit that we've been talking about for the past several months that so many governments in Africa and elsewhere have in their dealings with China, that they really just don't know that much at all about the people sitting across from them on the other side of the negotiating table. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big issue. It's particularly a big issue in the global south, where frequently these these governments don't really have the resources to to you know to have a, a, specify, a specific kind of China task team. Um, I think you know it's it's also really important to keep in mind that a lot of the way that Chinese diplomats behave has more to do with with conditions at home than than kind of traditional international diplomacy, and so. So, you know, it's not only that there are certain ways of doing things as a diplomat in China um, and certain kind of diplomatic traditions, but also that the home audience is frequently the main the main addressed audience, you know, rather than rather than the foreign audience. And that is that is something that I think a lot a lot of people who are used to Western diplomacy don't necessarily get. Well, we had that certainly under the Trump administration. You remember Kyle McCarter, who was the U.S. ambassador to Kenya, very performative guy. He was performing for an audience of one in many instances back on, uh, you know, in Washington. So I guess in some respects, there is some parallel there between what happened in the Trump administration and what you're talking about today uh, with the Chinese. But we're going to go back to school for today's show and really try and learn the basics about Chinese diplomatic history with an idea that will help us to better understand what's going on today. And our teacher is going to be Peter Martin, defense policy and intelligence reporter in the Bloomberg News Washington Bureau, and also the author of the fantastic new book, China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. He has an extensive background working in London, New Delhi, Beijing, and also he is a proud graduate of Peking University. Peter, a very good morning to you in Washington, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So the book is entitled China's Civilian Army, and you spend a lot of time explaining how the origins of Chinese diplomacy that date all the way back to the Communist Party's first foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, who famously said that, and I'm going to quote here, diplomats are the people's liberation army in civilian clothing. A civilian army not only needs to maintain strict discipline and obedience to commands, but also needs to cultivate a strong character and work style to serve the people like the PLA. So pick up the story from there about how today's Chinese diplomatic corps still retains many of those same values that were expressed by Joe back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of incredible when you think of the changes China has gone through um, over the last 70 years, you know, uh, the communist revolution, famine and starvation, the cultural revolution and, and uh, you know, political turmoil all the way through to economic reform and the rise to superpower status. And along that journey, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry has really kept this uh, remarkably consistent culture, which is rooted, as you said, in that ethos that uh, China's first, uh, that were the, the PRC's first foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, laid down in 1949. And, and the reason I think that Zhou laid down that um, that ethos is that China at that point faced a very uh, unique challenge, which is that, you know, it, it had to start off 
no diplomats to speak of. It, it kicked out any KMT diplomats who were left after the communist revolution. And it started more or less from scratch uh, with, you know, a, a bunch of peasant revolutionaries who had spent the last few decades fighting the Chinese nationalists and the, and the Japanese um, together with some fresh graduates and, and and a small group of people around Joe who had done a little bit of foreign affairs work, but never really played any significant role on the global stage. So Joe had to take this group and uh, meet this extremely daunting challenge of trying to find a place in the world for a new communist state, which faced a hostile United States faced a, you know, a rival government on the island of, of Taiwan um, and desperately needed friends, but was also extremely paranoid and jumpy about its own place in the world. And so for Joe, um, kind of modeling Chinese diplomacy on the People's Liberation Army made a lot of sense. First, that was something that, that uh, you know, was intuitively would be relatively easy to grasp for this new diplomatic core. Uh, and secondly, it served the purpose that, you know, every good communist knows that the People's Liberation Army is a party army, not a state army. It serves the Communist Party above all. And so this idea of strict, unfailing discipline to the party center um, and, and, and also this, this idea of having a martial ethos, a fighting spirit, um, was was something that made a lot of sense in that context. And it's really continued to define um, the way that China's diplomatic corps thinks of itself, uh, you know, all this time. What are some of the main ways that that the that the, the Chinese diplomatic corps keep all of these different diplomats on message? Um, like, how, how do they make sure that that you know, kind of what what is decided at the top then gets kind of beamed out in this uniform way? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, it's similar. It's similar to the way that the whole um, system keeps itself on the script. So. You know, you, you need to think of um, the, the Chinese bureaucracy as having different levels of um, what, what we might call authoritative statements, right? So right at the top is if Xi Jinping has said something in a speech, uh, that's, that's kind of the gold standard for what Chinese policy is. And then below that and kind of cascading ranks downwards, uh, you know, including the, the, the foreign minister, Wang Yi, if he has said something, then that's a line that other diplomats are going to follow and, 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 you know, and so on and so forth. And these things are um, enforced through uh, internal study sessions in the foreign ministry, uh, through the way that um, the bureaucratic process works inside the um, inside the diplomatic corps. And, and, and actually, on that point, uh, the foreign ministry is not so different to any other part of, uh, of the Chinese bureaucracy. Let's do a little bit of a lightning round on some of the characters and the personalities that make up Chinese foreign policy, both historically and in the present day. I think we see a lot of these names in the news. A lot of them are in Africa quite a bit, but people don't really understand their background. Your book did an excellent job at contextualizing these people. Let's not spend too much time on each one because I've got four people that I need to get through. Let's start with Zhou Enlai. You mentioned him briefly as the first foreign minister and later premier of China after the communist revolution in 1949. Give us a little bit more about Zhou Enlai. 
Yeah, so so Joe, I really think of as the founding father of of Chinese diplomacy. Um, he was born in the late nineteenth century to a, a, a kind of genteel family, which had hit on hard times. Um, and he saw really he grew up through the, the the waning of the the Qing dynasty's power and watched China take an increasingly uh, weak and marginalized place in the global stage and. Uh, you know, came to see ultimately Marxism as uh, a way to save um, the nation that he that he loved so much. And he studied abroad, including stints in uh, in Japan, in France, visits to Germany and the United Kingdom. Uh, and and you know, was an early member actually of the the Communist Party's Paris branch. Um, so you know, really uh, quite a cosmopolitan figure. Spoke multiple foreign languages, um, and 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 was the most effective uh, member of the early Communist Party at forging ties with the outside world. Which is ultimately why Mao Zedong turned to him as the person who would craft China's approach to diplomacy. Joe's tour through Africa in in, in sixty three and sixty four um, was really really a, a landmark. You know, kind of. Uh, you know, part of, of China's engagement of, with the entire global south, not only with Africa. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about how that that kind of engagement and and the, and the general kind of developing world engagement and anti colonial engagement, how how that kind of fact, you know is is how, whether that is still kind of salient in, in contemporary Chinese politics. I think it absolutely is, and um, you know what what I think is really fascinating in the last few years is that China has lent more more on that identity as kind of a leader of the developing world. Um, it's done through, so through the, the Belt and Road Initiative and, and through various other diplomatic um, forums. And, and I think one of the reasons it's done that is that, uh, you know, it, it believes um, probably with some justification that there is this broad-based uh, backlash against it in the West and that it's going to be tough for it to make headway Um uh, in, in Western nations. But but one of its talking points is, well, you know, the West is a uh, minority in the world and it's a declining minority and that, you know, the, the developing world is going to take center stage. And, and that is where China is most at home. Uh, that that doesn't always play out that way um, in practice, but it, but it does mean that as China pursues that strategy, Joe's tour to Africa, the Bandung Conference, and all of these historic moments in in China's engagement with the global South have have kind of taken on a little bit more importance. Earlier this year, a gentleman by the name of Yang Jiechi made trips to Uganda, to Zambia. He was in Qatar as well. He's an unfamiliar face in Africa, but yet the importance of Yang uh, can't be overstated. In fact, he today is the highest ranking diplomat in China. He's even above the foreign minister. He's a former foreign minister of China. He is also a former ambassador to the United States and very much an architect of Chinese foreign policy around the world, very much focused on the U.S. Many of you who saw the very tense showdown between U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his Chinese counterpart, and they were yelling at each other in Alaska. That was Yang on the other side of the table. So he shows up in Africa. He shows up in the Middle East quite a bit. Who is Yang Jiechi and why is he important? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Yang, if, if you had to pick one individual as um, kind of the, the personification of China's diplomatic core, I think it would probably be Yang. He's had a, a pretty extraordinary career, you know, born to relatively humble circumstances in, in, in Shanghai. Um, he was handpicked 
um, by Zhou Enlai, uh, together with a, a small group of students who were sent uh, abroad in the early 1970s in a, in a bid to build up talent in the foreign ministry um, uh, as China would emerge from the Cultural Revolution and want to take on a more central role in the world. Um, so he studied in the United Kingdom, came back to Beijing, um, where he worked as an interpreter in the foreign ministry and very quickly uh, was given this role as uh, a U.S. expert. Um, he has had ties with the Bush family since uh, the late 1970s, which he has maintained um, ever since right through to the present day. Um, and, you know, eventually was uh, was appointed China's ambassador in Washington, where he uh, he actually suffered a, a massive heart attack and uh, was operated on by Dick Cheney's heart surgeon, um, went back to Beijing. Uh, eventually rose to become foreign minister and then, uh, you know, all the way to um, to the Politburo where he sits today. And Yang really um, is capable of kind of charm and then acerbic uh, assertiveness and, and even aggression um, in equal measure. So at times he will quote the New York Times culture section, he'll crack jokes, and at other times he will just issue these withering dress downs of his, uh, his counterparts in the way that we saw in, uh, in Anchorage, as you mentioned. And what is the Politburo? Because we hear that quite a bit. Try to explain that to us. Yeah, so the, the Politburo is really the highest ruling institution inside uh, the Communist Party. Um, it's where, you know, ultimate decision-making authority um, lies. Uh, it's a 25-member organization, um, which which really controls the, the way that the CCP um, functions and issues broad ideological guidance, which is then taken up by China's government bureaucracy, um, and and ultimately, you know, shapes the direction of China. Inside the Politburo, there is a, a smaller standing committee, which um, which is you know e- kind of an even higher level within within the Politburo. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping is right at the centre of that decision making process. But you know, from from China to the the Soviet Union, the, the Politburo has really been an institution which is uh, at the centre of, of political authority. I was very intrigued by this this kind of oscillation that you pointed out between between being very kind of soft spoken and urbane, and then having these kind of moments of performative rage, you know, kind of when 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 you you needed to. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that about that kind of aspect. Um, and you know, it, it does seem under people like Zhao Lijian that this kind of this, this being having the ability to kind of project rage has become a really valuable thing for 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 an ambitious. Um, Chinese diplomat to have. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of of Yang's Yang's work. Yeah, I mean, I think when when you talk to people who have interacted with Yang throughout his career, what's really interesting is that this sense that he's never out of control. You know, you might see some of these incidents written up as him losing his temper or, or, or whatever. He he is capable of. Uh, you know, launching into these extraordinary uh, diatribes and, you know, replete with performative anger and finger wagging and, and, and a raised voice. And one minute later, uh, snapping back into full on 
friendly mode, uh, which is apparently exactly what he did um, during the Anchorage meetings. And so, you know, this this performative anger is is really a tactic in in Chinese diplomacy. And even even the smoothest Chinese diplomats, you know, think of someone like uh, the recently departed Chinese ambassador to the US, Tsui Tien Kai, who we, we think of as more in this mold of kind of charming and persuading the outside world and much less as a wolf warrior sway is equally capable of launching into those those kind of angry outbursts in private um, and has done so on multiple occasions throughout his career and so when when you see it happen i think it's it's important to remember that um it's calculated it's not a loss of control so young jiechi was succeeded by a gentleman by the name of wang yi wang yi is a familiar name in many parts of africa because he begins his first overseas tour, historically, that's been what the Chinese have been doing for 30 years in Africa. He's been to the continent twice this year. He's traveled quite a bit to the Middle East. He's in the headlines quite a bit. I tend to think of him as he's Xi Jinping's foreign minister because he assumed office in March 2013, which is exactly when she assumed the presidency of China. And she became Communist Party secretary, if a general secretary, if I recall, in November so basically, Xi Jinping has never had another foreign minister other than Wang Yi. And Wang kind of came to power through the foreign ministry in Asia. He's the former ambassador to Japan. He was also the director of the Taiwan Affairs Office. And for those of you not familiar with Taiwan in specific, being the director of the Taiwan Affairs Office is an incredibly important diplomatic posting, given the importance that Taiwan has to China's overall security. And then he became foreign minister under Xi Jinping. You alluded to the fact that in many ways, he strikes the mold of what a foreign minister should look like. He's been credited as being like the gray fox and very handsome and very popular with the with the Chinese public. Tell us a little bit more about Wang Yi. Yeah, I mean, Wang is is quite an extraordinary figure, really. Um, he's a, you know, as you mentioned, he's, a, he's an Asia hand. He speaks fluent Japanese. He also uh, spent a year studying at Georgetown University in, in Washington. Um, he's highly charismatic inside the foreign ministry. Um, uh, officials kind of will talk about Yang, about, sorry, about Wang as a, as a real politician, uh, a smooth talker, whereas, whereas Yang Jiechi is seen as someone who's much more kind of a bureaucrat. But that was what people said about Zhou as well, correct? That he was very smooth, almost to the point of being dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think there are there are some parallels. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes it's easy to underestimate um, just how impressively uh, Wang has dealt with um, the political circumstances that he's been handed. You know, he became he, he rose up through the foreign ministry, um, kind of uh, took on uh, much of the culture of that organization uh Really, his career excelled as China was still in this hide and bide phase um, and, you know, um, was, was actually very, very important in China's efforts to um, charm and win over opinion in Southeast Asia in uh, in the 1990s as the, his role in the um, Asia Affairs Division in the Foreign Ministry. But then as Xi Jinping reoriented Chinese diplomacy, was looking for a much more central role for China in the world um, and and was really comfortable with a, a far more assertive, some would even say aggressive um, stance in international affairs. Wang was able to kind of take the foreign ministry and, and pivot it 
toward that new direction under Xi and to do some to do so with with real success. And, you know, indeed, he was promoted from from being you know merely foreign minister to also taking on this this title in, inside China's government of, of state councillor, which elevated him to um, to a kind of higher position and uh, gave him a more important uh, role in the Chinese bureaucracy. It's a, a very shallow question, but um, you, you pointed out that that he is rare among among these, this level of Chinese official in in not dyeing his hair. Um, what, you know, kind of what, what is the you know what is the message of of this kind of like kind of quite glamorous kind of silver hair that 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 he is that he's sporting? You know, kind of you know, kind of what is the kind of message, particularly within China, that 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 sends in in terms of not not going with dyeing. Gosh, I think you'd need to ask Wang. I mean, I guess <laughs> we would guess love to have crazy. Mr. Wang on the show, but unfortunately, he's not taking our calls. <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> you should invite him. I mean, I guess it speaks to um, you know just a high degree of uh, of self confidence. Um, it's it's something that you know it's, he's not alone in 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 not dyeing his hair. Um, it's, it's something that some other politicians do. And, and, and actually there have been pictures relatively recently of she having moments of, of, of gray hair pop through as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, in response, we'll, we'll see lots of Chinese officials kind of follow that lead. But yeah, I think, I think it, um, it, perhaps it speaks to, to a willingness to kind of forge his own path a little bit. Okay. You, you mentioned she, Xi Jinping came to office November 2012 as the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Many people don't know that he was a compromise candidate back then, and he was not the first choice to to be the big boss. He has now become the most important, significant leader in China really since the Mao era. He is now leader for life. There is no term limit on his presidency and on his rule. And more importantly, as you've alluded to, he has transformed Chinese foreign policy. We are no longer in the bide your time, which was the motto under Deng Xiaoping. And he is in many ways forcing the issues and putting China back into this idea of national rejuvenation. And he's brought up a lot of these concepts and principles that you talk about in the book, the Chinese dream, national rejuvenation, major country diplomacy. Talk to us about the impact that Chinese diplomacy has had under Xi Jinping. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know there has been a real, real shift in 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 China's behaviour. I mean, I guess you know it's important to think of Xi as really a, a child of the the Communist Party system. His father was a very high ranking official who um, rose to prominence under Mao and then uh, kind of fell from grace later in his career and and suffered greatly during the Cultural Revolution. Um, she spent time in the countryside during that period. Um, and, you know, he, he, he says that he, you know, had an opportunity to learn from the peasantry during that time. Um, of course, I, I, you know, I'm sure he, he found, um, some degree of special treatment as, as the, the son of a, an official, but, you know, nevertheless, that was, that was an important formative moment for him. And ultimately he decided also to pursue a career in Chinese politics, um, his first job in Beijing was serving under Gung Biao, who was one of the first PLA generals who was sent overseas as an ambassador uh, in the early 1950s. And she uh, she worked with him before uh, climbing the ladder in, in Chinese provincial politics in Hebei and then off in the coastal provinces. Um, and he has this 
vision for a more confident China, for uh, a China that is deserving of deference and respect in the world. And, you know, in his own words, um, is moving closer and closer to the center of the global stage. Um, and, you know, I, that that approach and that instinct has really reverberated across um, China's diplomatic core, but also China's uh, external propaganda system uh, and really the entire the entire government apparatus. And it, it's something that Chinese officials have had to grapple with. Uh, and it's something that, you know, the world uh, continues to try to understand and uh, really to decide on a response which which might be appropriate. So you know, as as you pointed out, to this this is kind of move towards a more a more kind of centralized position for China and the world. You know, was was to a large extent his. You know, he he coined the the, the vocabulary within which it's happening. Um, but to a certain extent, that that move would be was a, a natural phase, right? Kind of, I mean, it's it's difficult to be the world's second largest economy and not have a, you know a, a more central position in the world. Even though you know the the Japanese precedent for that, you know, kind of was was somewhat, you know, somewhat different. Um, but so, so, to which extent? Um, this is a bit of a vague question, but to to which extent? Was the controversy that that emerged from that that kind of move to a more to a more kind of proactive, more centralized position? To which extent did is was that a reflection simply of this kind of massive structural you know shift? And to which extent do you see a, a, a kind of a Xi's personal style kind of contributing to to that to making that more controversial? Yeah, that, I mean that's a great question, and I think um, you know she she is such a uh, uh, such a powerful figure uh, that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that he is uh, both a product of his times and he is someone who's driving uh, change in his own right. You know, China, um, as you know, uh, emerged very strongly from the two thousand eight to nine financial crisis. Um, the, the government delivered a, a very effective fiscal stimulus package, which, um, you know, it, it, some would claim had a, a very important role in, in upholding global growth, even though it, it, it later created all kinds of problems for China's economy. Um, it went through the experience of watching the Arab Spring and, uh, you know, being very conscious of the vulnerability of authoritarian um, regimes in the world. And then also, you know, through the 2010s, watched as the West um, descended into political dysfunction, gridlock, uh, the rise of populism. And then, of course, um, the event, you know, events like Brexit, the election of, of President Donald Trump, and eventually the West's, uh, or you know, North America and Europe's really fumbling response to the, the coronavirus pandemic. And all of these things have created this sense within the Chinese elite that, uh, you know, perhaps China's time has come, that the West's model is not as infallible as they were led to believe in uh, the wake of the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, and 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 this idea that that really China doesn't need to take lectures um, from the Western world anymore, and especially from the United States. And so, you know, she is a product of that deeper shift, uh, and he's also someone who has we might say kind of fast track China's um, response to it, you know, in the sense that he has abandoned this low key approach to diplomacy. And I think that 
throughout the, the, the foreign policy apparatus in China, there is a widespread recognition that, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of low key approach that China took after the Tiananmen massacre in the early 1990s was not sustainable anymore. You know, as some people in Beijing like to say, you can't hide an elephant. And, um, you know, that's that's absolutely true. There, there would have to have been some shift. But I think there are quite a lot of people who 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 kind of see the approach that China's taken as, as needlessly confrontational um, and and as creating this uh, this backlash, which we now see reflected in global opinion polling um, and in the statements of, of leaders, not just in the in the US, but in, in many countries, uh, including many developing countries like India. Uh, so, so that's where some of the, the, the controversy has, has, has arisen. But as I say, it's, it's driven by Xi and it's, it's driven by much broader historical trends. You, you know, there's a lot of discussion about those public opinion polls that you mentioned. So in the global north, the public standing of China has just cratered. And this is not just in, in the U.S. and in Europe, but in Korea, in Japan, in uh, also in Australia, public opinion towards China is very, very low. India is a different story because historical ties have always made it very, very complex. So in many ways, that's not necessarily representative of the broader global South. Kobus, I'm listening to what Peter's talking about in terms of the rhetoric that she is using in this idea of not wanting to take lectures from the U.S. and Europe anymore. That seems to me that that would resonate in Africa and in South America, who have had very, very tiresome relationships with the global north. They, too, have gotten exhausted of these lectures. And the public opinion polls that we see from Arab Barometer and Afrobarometer indicate that China's standing is actually holding its own in many respects. When you hear Peter talking about some of these public opinion perceptions and China's, and she in particular, his vision for standing up to the established world order. What's your take on that, Kobus? Well, yeah, as you say, you know, be, be, you know, the, the, I think, I think, it's seen from from places like DC or London or Brussels. The, the, you know, kind of a, a, a big emerging power saying they don't want to take any lectures from from the West. You know, does. <laughs> you know, kind of spark some, some. You know, it's it's, it's a kind of a, a controversial thing to say, but of course, that's that's something that many people in the global south have felt for a long time. Um, and also with with that, you know, I think the this kind of message coming out of um, out of Beijing that that a lot of a lot of kind of Western kind of norm setting can be very hypocritical. You know, I think I think that that is kind of very very widely accepted as well. I think in the global south, I think where the 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 difference then comes, I think, you know, with with this issue of of not only you know pushing back on the West, but then also appearing extremely thin skinned, um, and I think that raises a lot more a lot more worry. You know, kind of the 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 really furious reaction to to relatively minor kind of things. So for example, the the example that Peter points out in his book um, in 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 Nauru, you know, the 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 kind of effect in the Pacific Island where you know where where Chinese diplomats were, were literally like, like shouting and fighting, you know, kind of with with their hosts, um, you know that kind of that kind of moment, I think, does raise worry, um, and you know, and and I think to, to a large extent, it it, it does. 
It does it strike me as kind of pointing to a certain kind of level of failure in Chinese public diplomacy in the sense that I think if a country is simply presenting a, a, a calm and non-scary alternative to Western power would in a lot of ways have been more effective rather than rather than kind of you know kind of you know kind of being so for example so incredibly hardcore on on, on some of the red lines that that you would be willing to to pick fights about really minor issues um on the other hand, everyone now knows where the red lines are, right? <laughs> so no one, you know, kind of as, as, as we've seen, no African country is challenging China on Xinjiang, for example, even though there's many Muslim-majority countries in Africa. So it, in some cases, it may, it may well be working. Um, Peter, like, how, how, do you, how do you see that balance? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that you guys are much better positioned than me to, to kind of think about the, um, the, the reputational impact that, that China's sort of move toward a more assertive diplomacy has had in in Africa. I guess um I, I see that approach as uh, you know rhetorically it's often it's often set up as something that's that's happened in opposition to the West. But in, in practice, Chinese diplomats have managed to pick uh fights, sometimes literal fights, uh in in, in Fiji, in Venezuela, in Papua New Guinea, in Brazil. Uh you know, and I and I also think that you're you know, you're absolutely right that India is um, is different for all kinds of historical reasons, but it's also incredibly important when you think about um, the world that that we're moving into, more multipolar and one where U.S. power will need to be buttressed by um, alliances more than ever. And you know, it's this it's this billion person economy that shares a border with China. Um, and uh, you know, is 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 really going to be play a crucial role in the balance of power. And and China seems to have so thoroughly alienated opinion there, and and, and kind of driven it into this much closer alignment with uh, with the United States, and also deeper partnerships with with countries like um, Australia and Japan and even Vietnam. And uh, and so, you know, many of these actions also seem to be uh, generating pushback in the developing world, even if it's it's not quite as uniform as, as perhaps it is in um, in Europe and uh, in the United States. Yeah. And there's a giant chasm in many African countries and in many countries around the world, not just in Africa, between how parts of civil society, large swaths of civil society perceive China and how governing elites do. And let me take everybody back to last year during the Guangzhou incidents when dozens, possibly hundreds of black residents and African migrants and African residents in the southern Chinese city of Guangzhou were forced out onto the street. And it brought up this pattern of how the Chinese engage in public diplomacy. And it was mid-April last year when this happened, and the Chinese government was silent. Meantime, on social media, this is just blowing up. Images are going all over the place of the maltreatment, the abuse, the rampant open discrimination against black residents and Africans. And the Chinese were quiet. Then three days later, the party line started to come down. There is no discrimination in China. We treat everybody the same. Whatever you saw was the Western media trying to drive a wedge between China and Africa. Okay. And everybody's like, okay. And then repeat, 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 repeat. And that was it. And they stuck to it. It was very interesting to watch how that formula played out because that's what they do over and over again. And then interestingly, in your book, here's what you wrote. 
you say that their propaganda efforts trace a very similar path. First, assess the facts. Second, craft the party's official line on how to describe what happened. Third, push out that narrative repeatedly at maximum volume. (laughs) My, oh my, you hear that over. And right now, what we are hearing is the party line on Fort Detrick. So the United States and the World Health Organization want to launch an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. They've responded saying, we now need to look into that the the COVID came from Fort Detrick. Xinjiang, same thing. You can go through one issue after another, and this little formula that you've crafted out in your book is exactly what happens. That is right out of their playbook. Talk to us about that strategy that they use. Yeah, I mean, I think... um you know, on, on, on some level, uh, it, it, it kind of depends on the issue, right? Like I think in t- when you, when you're talking about the origins of COVID, that is probably something which is designed to sow doubt in the minds of, of foreign audiences. It's not, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily designed to persuade. It's just, it's, it's pursued with this realization a little, a little bit like, uh, you know, the issue of, of climate change or in the nineties, the question of whether, uh, smoking caused cancer. It's like, you, you don't need to persuade people of your point of view. You just need to persuade them that there are two points of view, which are equally valid. And that's enough to kind of break um, consensus apart. And so I, you know, I, I kind of see some of those lessons playing out there. It's a little bit like when Donald Trump would say, well, people are asking. And no one's really asking, but he would throw a very provocative concept out, out of left field that would challenge the conventional wisdom. And he would just say, people are asking. So in some ways, it's just to throw doubt into the conventional wisdom. And it's an incredibly powerful tool, you know, like sudden, if, if you can establish an alternate narrative, uh, it, it, it suddenly changes the discourse uh, to a place where it's like, well, on the one hand, this and on the other hand, that. Uh, and, it, you know, that's that's uh, that's a, that's a classic technique for for, for sowing doubt and, and creating division. I think um, that probably plays out slightly differently when it comes to Xinjiang. Certainly there is, um, there's some of that going on um, and you can see it with China's efforts to, you know, send influences there, you know, social media influences to Xinjiang and kind of report that, you know, nothing to see here, all is well on the ground. I also, you know, there's, there's kind of an additional element there, which is that, that that issue is so difficult to address for, uh, for Chinese officials. There really is, uh, no set of talking points, which is going to persuade outside opinion of the efficacy of China's policies. You know, how, how, how on earth do you persuade an American, um, or a, you know, a, 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 a pro-democracy audience that uh, re-education camps are, are the right solution um, to that problem set. You, you can't. So what's more important is to make sure that everyone kind of sings from the same hymn sheet and um, there's no break in ranks. So I, I think, you know, there's kind of a dual purpose going on there when it comes to that issue. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the domestic audience and like like kind of the how these kind of foreign interactions, 
you know provide optics domestically. Um, you 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 make the point, and this is also really, really interesting for me. This this kind of continual kind of drumbeat of pressure from from ordinary citizens in China that they want more aggressive and more assertive Chinese diplomats to the extent of even even kind of sending calcium pills to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to to get diplomats to grow a spine. Um, so it's it's really it's, it's a very very interesting dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it's a crucial question, and and I think uh, it's it's just so important to remember that that when it comes to Chinese diplomacy, um, domestic politics really rules the roost, you know. Um, and Chinese diplomats, uh, when they're in meetings with foreign counterparts, when they're appearing on on foreign television stations, and even when they're writing on on Twitter, which is of course a platform which is banned in China, um, their first, second, and third audience is is back home in Beijing. Um, the, the 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 foreign interlocutor is way down the pecking order, and uh, you know that. That applies to um, kind of the audience of one, Xi Jinping. It applies to the broader party elite, and it also applies to um, to the Chinese public at large. You know, when when these wolf warrior episodes happen, they will be reported often in in Chinese media and and played out to a domestic audience as well. What I think is is really interesting in the in the Xi Jinping era is that whereas um, in, in kind of the 2000s and, and, and the early 2010s, um, online opinion, kind of nationalists who would use web forums and, and, and write on microblogs were kind of way out in front of the government when it came to nationalism. And they often saw the government's responses as very weak and ineffective when it came to standing up to the West. Um, and, uh, and and dealing with China's critics. What's happened now is that um, that nationalism has really uh, taken on, um, you know, has been embodied by by Xi Jinping. Uh, I think it's it's pretty hard, uh, in in truth, to find very much daylight between online nationalist opinion and the official pronouncements now of Xi and of uh, of foreign ministry spokespeople. Um, so we, we've kind of, I think, seen um, Chinese online nationalism go go mainstream and go official. Um, and uh, that's that's a pretty powerful and potent combination. It's a little bit like populism in the U.S. and Europe, too. It's a form of populism, right? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's that's definitely a fair, a fair statement. OK, uh, very quickly before we go, because I know you've got to get on with your day. Uh, have you gotten any reaction from say, the Chinese embassy in Washington, any Chinese stakeholders, the Chinese foreign ministry about your book, positive, negative, have they said anything to you? <laughs> it's, um, it's a good question. Uh, uh, broadly, no. I, I have been made aware that uh, they know the book uh, is coming out um, or ha- has come out. Um, and, and, and beyond that, I haven't had um, any other feedback yet. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of watching that space. Okay, so let, let's put it this way. Do you think you're ever going to get a visa to go back to China again in your life? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that's, that's, a, that's a question a lot of, uh, of foreign correspondents are asking. Fair enough, um, fair enough. Yeah. The book is China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. It is available on Amazon as a Kindle download. Can't recommend it enough. Absolutely essential reading. It was written by Peter Martin, defense policy and intelligence reporter 
at Bloomberg News in Washington. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, if people want to go buy the book, we'll put a link to uh, to the Amazon store in our show notes. But if they want to follow what you're reading and writing and some of your thoughts on Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, yeah, please do go and buy the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, I, I'm on Twitter as uh, Peter Martin underscore PCM. Wonderful. We'll put a link to Peter's Twitter handle as well as the Amazon link in the show notes. Once again, Peter Martin, really appreciate your time today. Congratulations on the book. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Kobus, I have been studying Chinese affairs now 32, 33 years, since the late 80s is when I started. I'm dating myself here. I have a lot of big gaps in my knowledge on China, and I'll be upfront. And this was one of them, was I've seen so many of the patterns and so much of the language, but I didn't understand the roots of it. I didn't understand why Chinese diplomats behave the way they do, why they are so reluctant to speak to the press? Why are they so uniform in all of their talking points? And a lot of us just thought, wow, this is super disciplined messaging and a very well-run organization, when in fact, it's that they're just, as, as we heard in the from Peter, and it's also explained in the book, they're reading from the same playbook. And there is that discipline, that militaristic discipline that exists within the foreign ministry. And you see that play out on Twitter and in their statements and in their behaviors and the way that they organize their public diplomacy engagements. It's absolutely fascinating. I, you know, I keep coming back to this show after show, and I hope the, our listeners aren't going to get bored of me saying it, but it is so critical, especially now that we are six, seven weeks out from FOCAC, and it may even be too late for the negotiators going into FOCAC, but to read these kinds of books and to better understand the people on the other side of the table. Because honestly, it's really hard. It's very difficult. They're coming from a very different place than we're accustomed to, but people just don't do it enough. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's really, really important to to know where these diplomats are coming from, you know, and, and, and what particular kind of page they're on and particularly also which pressures they're facing. It's it's really it's really important. Um I think what you know, th- this is a this is a kind of a really complicated moment for Chinese diplomacy because um on the one hand they are you know, kind of they they they're coming from a position that they've established their, their position, their red lines their talking points and so on they've established them very well um, so everyone now knows what China thinks about Xinjiang or the South China Sea what I think is very very challenging though is that everything is changing so quickly and and we need to get such massive work done in the next 10 years in order to 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 ensure human life on the planet you know um so and 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 then they have to deal with completely unprecedented problems um at a moment where they have all very very little kind of leeway personal leeway to to maneuver you know they're, they're under so much pressure within beijing they're speaking almost exclusively to a to a chinese audience even even as they seem to be speaking to the rest of the world and at that moment they they also we we need them to like bring china to the table to deal with things like climate change you know so so it's it's really it's really interesting to see it in action and it's at the same time scary to see it in action you know it's interesting because six seven months ago i noticed that the chinese embassy in liberia was tweeting in chinese and i I just for the life of me i couldn't understand why are they tweeting in chinese who are they intending to reach 
in Chinese? Because clearly in a place like Liberia, not that many people speak Chinese who are not Chinese. And Twitter's banned in China, so it's not accessible to the Chinese public. But clearly they were writing to their bosses and they were writing up the chain of command. They were writing for each other. It's exactly what Peter was talking about. And I think that's so interesting. Speaking of social media and to your point about their ability to react in this rapidly changing environment, there's some fascinating things that have been unfolding in the Democratic Republic of Congo over the past several weeks. Now, we've talked about them in in our writing on their site. We've we talked about it on a show a couple of weeks ago about the maltreatment of workers by Chinese managers, one video after another. I wrote a, a column that suggested that the Chinese embassy needs to respond to these things. They need to engage if they want to try and manage this. Then today, what's very interesting in the past two or three days, actually, but today it really kind of peaked. And we, we wrote about this in, in the newsletter and also on the site. There was an image that circulated of Congolese soldiers, FARDC soldiers, working in a kind of a mining pit right side by side with Chinese, what they look like to be small-scale miners. And it's one of these images that just encapsulates the entire story about the frustrations that a lot of Congolese people have. The idea that the military, and the military in the Congo has never been like a normal functioning military. It's, it's more like a gang in many respects, but they're for hire. But the military is helping the Chinese plunder the country's resources. That's the narrative that kind of took off on Twitter. Of course, no response from the Chinese embassy, no response from Chinese companies. When a Chinese mining company did respond to the fact that two Congolese soldiers were implicated and arrested for beating up a, an employee of a mining company while three Chinese mining company in, in managers looked on while this beating was taking place, the statement that the mining company issued in French and in Chinese said they regret what happened but they never took responsibility. They never apologized for what happened. And it stuck to this really formulaic language. And it's so interesting because I'm almost certain that that was done in conjunction with other stakeholders, possibly the embassy, possibly folks back in Beijing. But it goes to this so much of what Peter wrote about in his book in the way that they do these things. And that's why it takes this extra effort to read books like what Peter was doing in order to understand how they respond to these kinds of incidents, or they don't respond because they just can't move fast because they have to wait for Beijing to give them the direction on what to say and what to do. So this ability to move fast is going to be very challenging, I think, for the Chinese. Yeah, it's 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 a really big issue. It's it's also, it's it's I think a, a kind of a slow moving diplomatic train wreck a little bit, particularly in Africa, because the, you know. The thing is, the one thing that the one thing that that Africa has a lot of experience about is is foreigners showing up, mistreating local people, and 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 swanning around, kind of throwing their weight around, and you know, kind of in in other people's country. That's something that Africans have a lot of experience of, and it's something that I have very little tolerance of. So, you know, China is playing like these Chinese companies due to bad communication, you know, kind of bad media strategies. They're playing right into that narrative, um, and. You know, and and so it's you know 
generally like foreign for these kind of foreign actors and and of, and of course western colonialists were the the original example of that they they managed to um to to survive so long in, in africa to hold on so long in africa by by kind of you know kind of creating an, an environment in which corruption and and mis, and dysfunction ruled right so there it, it, it wasn't it wasn't so you know no, no one it was difficult to it it took hundreds of years to kind of to push the west out of africa um and but the thing is, the what that left behind was a, a very strong narrative of like foreigners are only here to exploit us. Foreigners will never do anything good for us. Foreigners will only suck us dry, right? And and the way that the Chin- that these kind of the, that Chinese entities, when these kind of scandals happen, the way that they act, the the kind of crouching, the refusing to talk, refusing to acknowledge it, the refusing to take any action. That that plays into a very very strong narrative in Africa, and it's one that that is that would that has the effect of devaluing China's strongest card in Africa, which is we're not the West. You know, it's it it, it turns we're not the West into we are the West. Um, you know, and and so it's you know kind of it. The, it, it. I, I'm not predicting that this that Africans are just going to kind of kick the Chinese out because of these because of these scandals because of the kind of you know kind of environment of dysfunction and corruption that that we still that we inherited from colonialism, but it doesn't. It, it it's not going to make their lives in Africa any easier. In fact, it will make it difficult and rapidly. Yeah, it's going to make things more more difficult. And what it does by not responding, as you pointed out. It creates these vacuums, and the world we live in today abhors an information vacuum. And so when the Chinese don't respond to the maltreatment videos, which they haven't really responded, it creates this new opening for fake news. And so another story that that ran this week and that we covered quite a bit in detail was this story that started to circulate on Congolese social media that 73 Chinese mining workers were arrested in Upper Katanga province in the DRC for kidnapping and eating children. Now, it's very easy to laugh at that story, how ridiculous it is. And they had a picture of the Comus SAS mine in Kaulesi of, you know, a group of mining workers. And Deutsche Welle did a great job at debunking this what it speaks to, though, is the anxieties that you talk about that Africa has and that China's playing into. And so there is a combination of fears now in Katanga of increased child abductions that have nothing to do with the Chinese. But this the surge of videos of the mistreatment of African workers by Chinese mining, Chinese mining managers is part of that anxiety now. And now fake news kind of fills that void. So when the Chinese don't have a counter message and the Chinese don't come out and have positive engagement on social media in the public to refute some of these these things, to really punish bad people for doing bad things, what ends up happening is these anxieties are amplified by fake news. And that just makes life so much more difficult for the Chinese to do what they want to do in Africa. And what happens then is the the chasm between the governing elites and the civil society grows even wider. And what I suspect is going to happen down the road is that more and more of the young people on social media who consume these videos and see the fake news and don't necessarily separate truth from fiction will start to harden their views of the Chinese, much the same way as I wrote about earlier this week about how 
a, a generation of young people and even myself in the United States have hardened their views on the police because of the videos of the abuse, the horrific abuse that's gone on for centuries and decades of African-Americans by law enforcement. It's the videos that did that. So as these videos keep circulating and surfacing, it's gonna create more and more problems for the Chinese unless they have a counter message, which they don't, because they don't move that fast. Final thoughts to you. Yeah, and I mean, you know, like I, I know one's first instinct is to be like, ha these these kind of crazy stories of, of cannibalism, but- No, they're very serious. But the thing they're is, very, very is serious. These, these kind of stories, stories of, you know, like the way the way that that these that these stories function in in different African societies is that they frequently just they they coded ways of talking about capitalism, right? Come capitalism and explo and, and exploitation, um, and uh, you know that that is frequently um, you know kind of lies at the heart of a lot of of kind of witchcraft narratives that that you see, for example, in Africa as well. Um, and so this is this is a, an early indicator that 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 I think Chinese actors should should be should you know should be concerned about, but I don't think they will be concerned about it because, frankly, I think there many of them who live in Africa are too arrogant. Um, and and they're and concerned about they, what goes on in Beijing. They're not concerned about what happens. Yeah, but but also but also they stepped into a, a, a kind of a, a little kind of trap set set for them by by the way that 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 you know the, by colonialism in Africa, which is that everyone who's not African who arrives in 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 Africa and and starts some kind of big initiative is vulnerable to thinking that they know what's going on when they don't. And, you know, and that like foreigners never know what's going on in Africa. And they, they always think they know what's going on for far too late. Um, so it's, you know, this could really come back to bite them, um, you know, but, but, you know, they, 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 so, they, so, they, they, they're so kind of hard headed in terms of, of not wanting to kind of to, to acknowledge any wrongdoing. Um, that that they will just leave it too late. No, I agree. I, I don't think they're, they don't get it. I don't think they know how to respond. And I think if they did come back with the response, it would be a very stilted response that would may even make the situation worse. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what we've seen to date. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it would be that productive. But interestingly enough, all of the stories that we've talked about in the show and these stories about social media that are popping up so fast we are finding these stories two, three, four days sometimes ahead of the major media. Uh, the story about Constantino Chuenga in Beijing and his team testing positive for COVID, we had right away, within hours, on on our on our website and on the in the newsletter. So, if this is the kind of thing that you're following and you're interested in, we've got a team now of people in China, in Nairobi, in South Africa, myself here, putting this all together. And I'm just so excited about the speed now that we're finding stories, the breadth of the stories, finding all of these great Chinese takes on stories that are not coming from propaganda, not from the mainstream news outlets, but from social media. Again, insights on the riots in South Africa from Chinese merchants and things like that. Go to our website, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Try it out for 30 days free. See if you like it. You'll get access to the site. You'll get all of the archives. It's a great research tool. So if you're in Washington, Brussels, London, 
and you're following China and what they're doing in the global south. We're doing a lot more now about the Americas, the Middle East, ASEAN as well. And we've got some really cool plans coming up for next year, which I'll, I can't wait to tell you more about that. But uh, again, try it out. We'd love your support. It also supports the journalism that we do. We're nonprofit, independently funded. We, you know, this is this is what we do. So your support is really appreciated. So we really appreciate all of you who have subscribed. Thank you so much. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. So for Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda and you can find Kobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Music